Okay, so I want to start today with a little survey. I need everybody to participate along. I'm going to ask you some questions, five questions to be exact, and when I do, I want you to give me a yes, no, or maybe so, and I just want to alleviate any fears. There are no gotcha questions here. These are just opinion questions, okay? So whatever you answer is perfectly fine. Everybody ready? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, you're not. Okay, that was a test. Everybody failed, all right? So we're going to try that again. Are you ready? Hey, there you go. There you go. Okay, question number one. Does money make life better? Okay, okay, yeah, a little bit all over the map right there. Good, good, good. By the way, this is just an, a suggestion, but if you were sitting next to someone who said no, now might be a good time to ask them for some of their money then. You could try that and see how that works. Okay, question number two. Would more money make your life better? Okay, a lot of murmuring, a little all over the map. Question number three. Would you like a little more money than you have right now? Oh, now we're all getting on the same page. Funny how that works. Question number four. If you had a little more money, do you already know what you'd do with it? Okay, okay. And then question number five. Does it make you nervous we're talking about money in church? Yeah, okay, okay. So let me alleviate this one real quick. You know, I know anytime a pastor gets up and talks about money, it's like, oh my gosh. You don't have to be nervous. There's no gotcha here. There's no I'm going to get to the end and say, now we want everybody to give a lot of money to this. There's none of that going on, okay? I just want something for you. I don't want anything from you. And I think as we go throughout today and throughout this series, hopefully that will be obvious and that will make sense. Now, one of the things that we all have in common, and it doesn't matter if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or you feel like you don't have hardly any money. Wherever you are on the spectrum, one of the things that we all have in common, at least most of us, is that we wouldn't mind having just a little bit more than we have right now. That's just true for all of us. That's just human nature, right? We just like a little bit more than we have right now. If I could just get a little bit extra, which is, which is funny, it's actually a bit ironic and strange because if there were a way for you to go back in time 10 years and talk to your 10-year younger self and tell your 10-year younger self what you have right now when it comes to money and possessions, I bet in almost every one of our cases, our 10-year younger self would be like, are you kidding me? You must be thrilled with life right now because your 10-year younger self dreamt of the day when you would have what you have right now. Your 10-year younger self thought if you could ever have what you actually have right now, that you'd be so happy and content you'd never want anything else, and yet here you are now, and in spite of the fact 10 years ago you thought you'd never want anything else, you still want something else, don't you? And the reason that's true for all of us is because 10 years ago, there were some things that were so far out of your reach that you thought, there's no way I'll ever get that. But now 10 years later, you have more. You have the things you weren't sure you'd ever have. But now there's a little bit more you can see on the horizon. And stuff that used to be a long way off is now just right there out of your reach. And so there's something in all of us that now that we get here, it's like, well, that's great. 10 years ago, I'd have been thrilled with this. Right now, I'm still happy with this. But I wouldn't mind having just a little bit more because it's just right there beyond our grasp. So in spite of the fact that we have grown up our whole lives being told, you know, we should be content, and in spite of the fact that we've grown up, grown up our whole lives being told, hey, if, um, you know, if you have more money, it's not really going to make you happy. None of us actually buy into that. All of us still want just a little bit more. Now, we have been advised against this our entire lives. It doesn't, hasn't really done any good. If you grew up in the 90s, I know we've got people from all over the spectrum here age-wise, but if you grew up in the 90s, you will remember that there was a wise philosopher in the 90s who told us, no, 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 you don't want to try to get more money in order to make you happy. More money doesn't make you happy. That wise philosopher was the notorious B.I.G. Anybody remember him? 
Here's what Biggie said. More money, more problems. You remember this? Most of you do. Some of you I should have used Elvis lyrics. I'm sorry. But for the rest of you, you can Google this, okay? More money, more problems. Here, here's what Biggie said. Biggie said, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. That is so true. That is so true. This was a much more entertaining way of saying what we have all been told at some point in our lives. And that's this simple idea that money doesn't make you happy. This is, this is what we've all been told. Money doesn't make you happy. And when somebody tells you that, what do you think initially? Try me. Just, you know, I'd like to prove that one for myself. So go ahead and load me up. You know, try me. Okay, here's, here's my goal. Here's what I want to suggest to you today. I want to suggest to you today that this idea that money doesn't make you happy actually might not be true. Instead, I want to suggest this to you, that money might be the solution to your problems. It really might. More money might actually be the solution to your problems. Now, I know I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to say Jesus is the answer to everything, but I'm not going to tell you that, okay? I'm going to tell you money might actually be the solution to your problems. And the reason I believe that's true is because when Jesus was on this earth, he often talked about money. And he talked about how money is one of God's favorite tools to fix many of the problems inside me and inside you. I don't know if you knew that. He said money is one of God's favorite tools to fix a lot of the problems inside me and inside you. What kind of problems are you talking about? Well, Jesus talked about how money impacts a lot of the problems inside of us. I'll just give you a few examples. Discontentment. Jesus talked about how the way you manage your money can actually solve or fix or resolve the discontentment issue that we all deal with. We're going to talk about this one in just a few minutes. He said money might be the solution to your worry problem. Anybody have a worry problem? Anybody obsessed with worrying? Anybody paralyzed by worrying? Jesus talked about worry a lot. And he said there is a direct connection between how you manage your money and your worry or your lack thereof. And that money might be the solution to your worry problems, not just to your financial worries. Jesus said it might be the solution to all of your worries. What about greed? None of us have a greed problem. At least none of us think we have a greed problem because greed always comes in disguise. Greed has many faces. Greed shows up in many places. None of us look in the mirror and see greed in ourselves. But you know how you know when greed rattles around inside of you? One of the ways you know is because greed suffocates gratitude. Always. Greed suffocates gratitude. So whenever you have a gratitude problem, whenever you're not grateful for things you used to be grateful for, you don't really feel grateful for things that you know you should be grateful for, whenever you meet somebody like that, I bet if you keep digging just below the surface, below that ungratefulness, there is a greed issue rattling around inside of you and rattling around inside of me. So in week three, we're going to talk about this one for just a little bit. Here's the thing that's interesting, though. Whether money helps or hurts depends on how you handle it. Jesus taught that money can actually help solve all of these problems. He also, also talked about how money can exacerbate these problems. It can just add fuel to the fire and blow them up into something bigger than they already are. The problem is not money. Money's neutral. Money's like a brick. You can do whatever you want with a brick. You can use it to deface or to harm or to damage, or you can use it to build a hospital. It's, it's what you do with the brick that matters. What Jesus taught, it's what you do with money that can either solve or worsen these problems in your life. So, how do you manage and use your money in a way that helps you and doesn't hurt you? That's what we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about. And today, I want us to focus on this first one, this idea of discontentment. Now, just to get us all on the same page, 
I want to start by giving us a definition of discontentment. I think it's a definition we can all agree with. Here it is. Discontentment is an appetite that's fed by awareness. Discontentment is an appetite that's fed by, uh, that's fed by awareness. And all appetites are never fully or finally satisfied. Isn't that true? The thing about appetites is so strange is the more you feed an appetite, the bigger it gets. It doesn't get smaller. It actually gets bigger. And this is why we all have this desire in us to pursue, to chase, to pursue, to chase. To, you know, Ten years ago, we'd have been so content with what we have now, but now we're not quite content. The reason is because discontentment is an appetite that is never fully or finally satisfied. So you can sum up discontentment, you can sum up this appetite in one word. It's the word more. I just want a little bit more. I want a little bit more. And this desire or pursuit for more is fed by awareness. It's fed by awareness. In other words, it's fed by the fact that we live in a culture where we are always being reminded of what we don't have, not what we do. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's just a thing, okay? It's just the way it is. But today, in our current culture, maybe more, t- more than any other time in history, we are so aware of everything we don't have. We're aware of everything we don't have when we get on social media because you're posting all the stuff you have that I see that I don't have, and suddenly I want things I didn't even know I wanted, but now that you've got it, I see and I want it. We're aware whenever, you know, just living in this world, whenever you go online and go onto Amazon, you see all the things now on your social media feed, or whenever you go online, they're popping up things that they know you're going to want, that you didn't even know you wanted, but they know you're going to want it, and based on your history, they're putting ads out there for you. You go in stores, you see, I have a buddy of mine who uh, calls Best Buy the Isle of Discontent. If you've ever been in Best Buy, you get it. It's like, I'm perfectly happy with everything I have till I walk in, and wow, that TV and surround sound is phenomenal. It's just, you know, where, wherever you go, you be, you're made aware of things you don't have. That's the whole point of marketing. If you're a marketer, that's a great thing. I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong. It just is. This is just the way human nature works, right? So because discontentment is an appetite fed by awareness, then we're always wrestling with this idea to pursue more and more and more. I think we can get that, and we can all agree on that. Here's the thing about discontentment that you may not be aware of, though. Discontentment can be healthy or unhealthy. So it can go either way. Unhealthy discontentment looks like this. Unhealthy discontentment is when you pursue more of something that will not ultimately lead to a better life. Now, I didn't say it wouldn't make you happier when you pursue it. It may very well make you happy. Unhealthy things make us happy all the time, don't they? All the time. We, we, we constantly confuse this. You can't confuse happy with healthy. You may be healthy and happy, that's great, but you can also be unhealthy and happy. And we all know what it feels like to pursue something, and then the moment makes us happy, but then down the road we pay a price, and we realize that did not actually lead to a better life. Now, the flip side of this is also true. Healthy discontentment is when you pursue more of something that will ultimately lead to a better life for you. And the irony of it is, healthy discontentment often gets you to pursue more of something that makes you unhealthy in the or unhappy, excuse me, in the short term, but far happier in the long run. The classic example of this we can all relate to is if you become discontent with your physical health, that's healthy discontent. I gotta get in shape, I gotta I gotta be better physically, that's a good discontent. So what do you decide to do? You decide to exercise more and change your diet which makes you very unhappy in the short term. It's actually painful in the short term, isn't it? But if you stick with it over the long run, you're far happier and you experience a much better life than just being happy in the short term 
and being unhealthy in the long run. Now, here's what's interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but when you look throughout human history, all of the major advancements, all of the good that's been done in the world has happened because a person or a group of people had a healthy discontent about something. One quick example. It was because Rosa Parks had a healthy discontent that she decided one day on a bus, I'm not standing anymore, I'm going to take a seat. And it was her healthy discontent that added fuel to the fire of a civil rights movement with Ralph Abernathy and Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others who were a part of that that led to where we are today as a nation. And while we have a long way to go, we at least have made some progress in it. And it's because there were a group of people that had a healthy discontent over the way things were and the way people were being treated. Same thing's true at the founding of our nation. The same thing's true when you start looking around at the good that's been done in the world, whether it's Scott Harrison and Charity Water and providing clean water to people around the world. I mean, you just pick your cause. It's because somebody had a healthy discontent. That's not the way it should be. I'm not going to stand for that anymore. I'm not going to stand for that anymore. That's not the way it's, it should be. I'm going to fix that. Now, if you're not a Christian, this will be new terminology for you, and it may sound strange, and I get that. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's another term that sometimes in church circles we use to describe healthy discontent. Sometimes it's called holy discontent. And holy discontent is basically the same thing. It just means we see some things in this world that are not the way God intended for them to be, and we just can't stand to leave them that way. So we're going to step in, and we're going to pursue doing whatever it takes to fix that problem, to solve that issue, to you know, pursue that cause, to make things the way God intended for them to be. So some people have a holy discontent about the fact that they're children who go to bed hungry every night. Or children who don't have a bed. Or people are living under bridges and they don't have a roof over their head. People you know, don't have enough food. People who don't have the medicine they need. People who don't have clean water. I mean, we could go on and on. Whatever those things are, that's a healthy or a holy discontent. And so how do you, in your own life, figure out how to turn the dial up on healthy discontent and turn the dial down on unhealthy how do you turn the dial up on things that are ultimately going to lead to a better life for you? And you turn the dial down on things that in the long run, pursuing them will not lead to a better life. That's the question that I want to answer today. The Apostle Paul, who you may or may not be familiar with, but Paul was one of the early followers of Jesus. Paul gave an eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, his story is fascinating because he was totally opposed until he saw Jesus alive after his death and then Paul bought in because it may be unbelievable, but it was undeniable for him. So he began following Jesus, and Paul wrote to a younger friend named Timothy, and he addressed this very issue of how do I turn up the healthy discontent and turn down the unhealthy so when I get to the end of my life, I've lived the kind of life I want to live, a kind of life that's full of meaning and purpose and significance, not a life of serial disappointment where I chased that and I thought it would make me content but didn't satisfy me, and I chased that and I thought it would do it but didn't satisfy me. So Paul's given Timothy advice on how to do this, and I think this, this advice is extraordinary. I think it's important. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you have a lot of money or you're like a college student or a high school student, you're going, I got no money, basically. doesn't matter where you are. This is some advice that applies to everybody that will work for anybody and I think is important for us all. So Paul begins with Timothy by giving him a broad perspective, and then from there he begins to build out this advice. So here's how Paul starts. He says, Timothy, for we brought nothing into the world we can take nothing out of it, to which none of us can argue. We all understand that. Paul says, let's just, let's just start by acknowledging 
Most of the things we pursue in life, they're actually temporary. We started out living without them and we were doing just fine. One day we're going to not have them anymore. We're going to be just fine. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. And I was reminded of this idea about a week ago. I have a five-year-old son. His name's James. I was driving him to preschool, and it was just the two of us in the car. And James was being very, very quiet in the back seat, which means the wheels are turning. If he's quiet, something's going on in his head. So I wait a few minutes, and then completely out of the blue, James says this to me. He says, Dad, I don't want to die. I'm like, where did that come from, you know? My driving's not that bad. I don't know what triggered that. So... I said, uh, James, why, do you, why are you scared of dying? I'm trying to you know, figure out what's going on in his head. And here's what he says, five years old, and I quote, Well, I don't want to die because I don't think the toys in heaven are going to be as good as the toys on earth. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I have a lot of work cut out for me with this kid. Now, we ended up having a conversation around this very principle where I got to explain to him, James, all your toys are temporary. None of them are going to last forever. Like, they're all going to, to which he said, but surely not my stuff, Mickey, to which I said, yep, even Mickey's gone one day, you know. So it was a crushing moment for my five-year-old, but, but he now knows everything's temporary. But, but the way he thought about things, quite honestly, let's be honest, his fear is a lot of our fears. We're all afraid. The toys in heaven aren't going to be as good as the toys on earth. That's why some of us make the decisions that we make. And Paul's going, no, no, you got to remember. Everything is temporary. You brought nothing in the world, you can take nothing out of it. And because Paul believed that, he could make this next statement that very few of us honestly could make. Here's what he says to Timothy next. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. <laughs> to which, if I'm honest, I read that and go, well, speak for yourself, Paul, but I need to know what kind of food and what kind of clothes those are. And you left some other things off the list that seem pretty important to me. Paul's going, no, no, no. If you understand that everything you tend to pursue is temporary, then it doesn't mean you shouldn't have more. You're going to see that in a minute. Paul has no problem with you having more. But Paul says you will learn to be content with the basics because none of it's going to last anyway. You're going to learn to hold things with open hands, you're going to learn what all of us eventually learn when we get to the end of our lives. If you've had the privilege of having a grandparent who's you know, lived to be old or you've had a, a friend who's lived up in years, one of the things that you probably have seen is this. The closer a person gets to the end of their life, the less they care about all the stuff that they used to value and treasure. You know what this the stuff that used to mean so much to them, their money, their possessions, their this, their that, the closer they get to the end of their life, you begin to notice it doesn't mean anything to them anymore. Something far different starts to matter. Because when you get to the end of your life, you realize, you get a perspective, you realize, oh wait, this is what matters, this is what doesn't, this is what lasts, and this is what doesn't. And so all Paul's saying is, instead of waiting till you get to the end of your life when you can't undo things, and relive your life, how about you figure this out now, and then live your life with an understanding that everything's temporary, and that some things last and some don't, and some things are way more valuable than others. It doesn't mean, it's, you're going to see in a minute, it doesn't mean you can't have things, but you're not going to let those things have you, or drive you, or control you. So Paul paints this picture and gives this perspective, and then he begins to give us some warnings, Okay. Now, let me just walk through these with you real quick. Here's what he says next. Those who want to get rich. Now, let's pause. He doesn't, he's not talking to people who are rich. There's no problem if you have a lot. We're all rich, honestly, in terms of the world's economy. 
But he says, if you want to get rich, in other words, if you are consumed with getting just a little bit more, to which you say, well, that's not me. I don't want to get rich. I just want to be secure. This is how we all talk about it. I just want to be prepared. I don't know what the future is going to hold. I just want to make sure I don't run out of money. I want to make sure I have enough in retirement. Paul says, okay. If your deal is you're pursuing as the foundation of your life, I need a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Paul says, you're wanting to get rich. And that desire to chase a little bit more that's actually not going to lead to a better life, that desire has some trouble with it. Here's what it is. Those who want to get rich, he says, fall into temptation and a trap. And into me, foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? But here's what he's talking about. He says, you want to get rich, you're going to end up falling for the temptation. What's the temptation? It's the temptation that unhealthy discontentment brings satisfaction and a better life. If you keep pursuing trying to get more as the foundation of your life and as a way to satisfy you and find meaning and purpose in life, you're falling for that temptation that unhealthy discontentment leads to a better life, which means you're going to fall into a trap. What's the trap? Well, it's the trap that more will create contentment in my life. It's a trap if I can just have that or just make that or just get to that point or just change that. It's a trap that more creates contentment. And Paul said, when you fall into that temptation and that trap, it causes you to make some very foolish and unwise or harmful choices. Causes you to have some foolish or unharmful desires, which leads you to do some things in life. Then when you get to the end of life, you look back and you regret. It leads you to a place, he says, of ruin and destruction. What's he mean by that? Well, maybe it's ruin and destruction financially. We've all seen that happen with people. But it's also ruin and destruction relationally because you will find yourself prizing possessions over people. You'll find yourself sacrificing relationships in order to achieve a little bit more and acquire a little bit more and make a little bit more. We've all been there. We've all seen that. And I think Paul's talking about the fact it can lead to ruin and destruction spiritually in the sense of, it impacts your soul. When you pursue getting rich or you pursue getting more, when you have unhealthy discontentment driving your life, it affects your identity. Your identity becomes wrapped up in what you have, what you've achieved, what you've acquired. And that's a very unhealthy foundation. It's a very unhealthy identity upon which to build a life. It's what Jesus talked about when he says you, you could gain the whole world and still lose your soul because you've built your identity and your foundation on the wrong thing, on something that's temporary. So Paul says, I just want to warn you, you pursue unhealthy discontentment. It's like sowing now and reaping later. Sowing now and reaping later. He goes on and gives us more warning. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He did, this is often misquoted. He didn't say money was evil. Money's just neutral. But he says, if you love money, it's going to be at the root of a lot of unwise, a lot of harmful, a lot of painful choices you make. Now, none of us believe we love money. Nobody's like, yeah, I love money. That's my whole deal. How do you know if you love money and you just don't see it in the mirror? You love money if you look to money for your security. You love money if it's, I got to get this much in the 401k and I got to have this much here and I got to have this and I got to own this and I got to buy this and I got to make sure I upgrade this. If all of that is wrapped into your identity and security, if losing some of that would make you fearful of the future, you love money. If it's driving your decisions, you love money. We've all been there, haven't we? 
And then for those of us who are Christians, he gives one more warning. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you get to take a pass on this one, okay? But for those of us who follow Jesus, he has one more warning for us. He goes on, he says, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I don't even have to convince you this is true because you have done it and so have I. You have become obsessed enough with achieving more, acquiring more, making more, that you have shifted your priorities and you have pushed to the side anything that has to do with your faith. Here's what this looks like. This looks like I don't have time to get up and spend a few minutes listening to God and talking to God every day. I got to get to work because I got to make my money and I got this and I got that and I got that. I don't have time. I can't give an hour to serve on Sunday because I'm working so much that Sunday's the only day I have with my family. So my family's hurting, and because my family's hurting, because I'm working so much so I can make more and so I can achieve more, then I've got to give them Sunday, which means I'm pushing aside serving. I'm not going to model that for people. And all of a sudden, your faith suffers. This, this is what it looks like. We, it doesn't happen overnight. It's very gradual. It's like a drift. You just st- start to wander off and push your faith off to the side. And... The thing that makes it so hard to see is because there's no immediate pain when you do this. You sow today, but you reap tomorrow. So you make those decisions today, and it doesn't hurt that you've spent less time with your family. It doesn't hurt that you cut out giving time to serve others. It doesn't hurt that you're not spending that time talking to and listening to God. There's no immediate impact on you. But over time, it catches up with you. The way Paul put it is said, you're going to experience some grief, some pain over time. And by the time it catches up with you and you feel the consequences of those choices, it's too late to go back and undo what you've done. You can change the future, but you can't go back and change the past. Because there's a delay between the choice you make today and the consequence of it. Tomorrow. So he says, you've you got to pay attention to this. You've got to figure out what's driving your life. You've got to figure out if you're pursuing healthy discontent or unhealthy discontent. Now, The bigger picture behind what he's saying is simply this idea. Your money follows your discontent. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. Your money always follows your discontent. In other words, if you are discontent with your house, then whenever you have any discretionary money, that's where it goes. It goes to upgrade your house, it goes to change your house, or it may I'm just discontent with the whole house and I'm going to buy another house. If you're discontent with your car, same thing. It goes to change my car, upgrade my car, just get a whole new car. If you're discontent with the clothes in your closet, that's where your money's going. You've got you to gotta upgrade, you've got to change, you've got to buy new stuff. This is true for all of us, okay? It's just the way it is. Your money always follows your discontent, which means if you're not sure what you're discontent about, all you have to do is look at where your money's going, and it will show you the things you're discontent about in your life. It, your money will reveal to you what you're actually pursuing most in life, what you think if I had just a little bit more of that, then life would be better then I'd be satisfied. Your money shows you that because it follows your discontent. So it brings up the question, well, Paul, okay, if I need to turn down the dial on this unhealthy discontent and I need to turn up the dial on healthy discontent, well, how do I do that? And Paul says, well, you have to understand your money follows your discontent, but, and he's about to explain this, Paul also said, the good news is, you can change your discontent by where you put your money. You can change your discontent by where you put your money. Because wherever you put your money, guess what else that thing gets? It always gets your attention. It always gets your awareness. And discontentment is an appetite 
fueled by awareness. So if you put your money towards things that are a healthy discontent, those things, the things that will lead to a better life, they will get your attention and they will get your awareness. And as awareness goes up here, it will naturally go down here. If you do the opposite, awareness will go up here and it will go down here. It's just the way it works. So as Paul's writing to his friend Timothy, he says, okay, Timothy, here's what I want you to, you to do. And here's what I want you to tell all the people who are following you to do as well. If you want to dial down unhealthy discontent and dial up healthy discontent. Here's what he says. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. Paul says, okay, I'm gonna, just going to paint a broad brush. This is all of us. We all have a little more than we need. So command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So Paul says, let's start right here. Just remind people that their wealth is temporary and untrustworthy. It's not bad. But it is temporary and it is untrustworthy. Don't build your life on it. Don't put your hope in it. Don't make, uh, make that what provides you with security. Now again, Paul's not opposed to having things. He says, I also want you to remember that whatever you have, God has given you for your enjoyment. So it's not a bad thing to have it. Just don't put your hope and your trust in it. Enjoy it. Don't make it the source of your joy. He says, that's step one. If you want to dial down unhealthy discontent and dial up healthy. But then he gets to this idea of redirecting your money towards where you want your discontent to be. So here's what he says next. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is Paul's way of saying, okay, you want to pursue things that are healthy discontent? You want to pursue things that are more of a holy discontent that are going to lead you to a better life? Here's what you do. You take your time, you take your money, and you redirect it that direction. Because whatever gets your money gets your attention. Whatever gets your attention gets your awareness. And as the awareness goes up on that, it will go down on the things that really don't matter. So just redirect. Learn to be generous. Don't use whatever discretionary money God has given you just to pursue a little bit more of this and a little bit more of this and a little bit more of this that actually never satisfies. Be generous and put it into things that are going to make a difference. Put it into things when you get to the end of your life, you're going to go, that mattered. That's going to live beyond me. Put it into things that are going to lead you to a life of purpose and meaning and significance. Paul's point was simply this, that discontentment is a good thing if you're discontent about the right thing. Discontentment can actually be a really good thing if you are discontent about the right thing. If you're discontent about the fact there are people in your life and people in our communities who have no idea there's a Father in Heaven who loves them and cares about them, if you're discontent about the fact that there are people who don't want, to do any, don't want anything to do with God or church because the way Christians have explained Him and modeled Him for them is that He's against everything, including them. If that bothers you and you want them to know, no, that's not true, you'll start putting your money and your time into that. That is a healthy or a holy discontent, and you'll start becoming more aware of that and less aware of some of the stuff that doesn't matter as much. If you're discontent about the fact that there are kids in our community who need a place to sleep, kids in our community who need food to eat, you start moving your money that direction, the awareness of those issues will go sky high for you. And your awareness about the latest whatever that you haven't upgraded yet won't matter nearly as much. It'll go down. 
because you've put your money there. It's captured your attention. Whatever it is, imagine. Imagine that you were more discontent about some of those things. Imagine if you were more discontent about the quality of relationship you have with your family. And you shifted some of your money towards that. Imagine if you were discontent about your faith, your relationship with Jesus, and the fact it's not as personal as you hoped it would be, and you shifted some of your time and money that way. Imagine if you were discontent about some of the things going on in this community, some of the causes. You shifted your time and your money that way. See, discontentment could be a really good thing for you if you were discontent about the right thing. It would actually lead to a life of purpose, meaning, and significance, lead to a life that was a better life, and it would lead to you being better at life. So, Here's what I want to do as we close. I want to ask you three questions. I don't know what you need to do specifically with this in your own personal situation, but these three questions will help you figure out what you should do as you walk out of here or you stop watching online and you go about your week. These three questions will help you figure out what your next step is that you need to take. And until you take that step and do something, you will never grow. So question number one is this. What are you discontent about right now? You've got something we all do. What is it that's occupying your time? What is it that, that captures your thoughts? What is it that you just wish, if I just had a little bit more money, that's what I would do with it, that's what I would do, that's what I would do, because you think that would lead to a little more satisfaction and contentment. What are you discontent about right now? Another way to think about that is this. What's your money tell you about your discontentment? Because if you follow your money, it will show you. Your money always follows your discontentment. So what's your money tell you about where you're discontent right now? with things that matter, with things that don't. And then third question. If you changed one thing about your money that would lead to a better life, what would it be? I bet you know. I bet immediately you know the answer to that question. It might be to develop enough self-discipline and to turn down unhealthy discontentment enough that you get out of debt. It might mean that you turn down unhealthy discontentment enough that you don't let your money control you, but you get on a budget and you develop a spending plan and you tell your money where it's going to go. It might be that you decide to be generous and direct more of your money towards a healthy cause of discontentment. You know the answer to this. Now you're responsible, if you want to grow, to go do it. I'll say it again. Discontentment is a good thing. If you are discontent about the right thing. About the right thing. And when you become discontent about the right thing, it leads to a better life makes you better at life. And you don't just benefit. The people you love and care about the most, they benefit too. Because you've got your priorities in the right order. And you're living a life that's going to outlive you. So if you've sat there thinking, well, I wish I cared more about, I wish I cared more about, I wish I cared more about, you just put your money towards whatever you wished you cared more about, and you will start caring more about it. Guaranteed. Because wherever you put your money, get your attention, get your awareness, and your money will then continue to follow your discontent. Let me pray for us. Father, I don't know what we need to do with this. I'm sure it's different for each of us. But I also know one thing we all have in common is discontentment is just a part of our lives. Often it's unhealthy discontentment that causes us to hurt relationships to waste time and seasons of life, 
to, to build our life around things that are temporary and uncertain, and in the end, we look back and realize it didn't matter anyway. We've all been there. We've all done that, but we don't have to keep doing it. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with this. Give us the courage to do it, even though it's hard. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.